You're either listening to this as a podcast, in which case we're just coming into your ears, or, and this works, we've got a video and it's on YouTube and you are looking at our beautiful, beautiful faces. Uh, I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and as always, I'm joined by my great friend and good co-host, Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm assuming that's going to be a full kaiju response throughout the entire episode. (laughs) I I, I know no words. (laughs) Uh, we are going to be covering, I don't know if it's, it's been announced, we've, we've been putting all this out there, but we're going back as always for season two. We've got all these uh, films we're going to cover. And um, I, I noticed something today, just looking at what we've got in the in the pipeline for series two. And um, we are starting at the very beginning with 1954 uh, with the, the Japanese movie Godzilla or Gojira, um, as it was, it's called. Um but one of the things I noticed, really, and I was just sort of looking at the videos, and I've got them up here in front of me, which you can't really see, but is this appears to be real. Like, it's our cult movie ser- season, this one. I was just looking through, and I was like, okay, we've got Godzilla, and I think, you know, just off air, you sort of mentioned that you've seen some Godzilla films, but not really seen this one. And then you've got other, uh, coming down the pipe, where you've got Barbarella, uh, Rocky Horror Picture, Videodrome, Mars Attacks, John Carter, Dread, uh, Valerian. All those are sort of like full-on proper cult films these days. So, some some really good obscure stuff this year. I'm, you know, so this season's going to be cracking. Yeah, I hadn't thought about them as cult films, but you know, I had thought about them as just stuff that was fun. Mm. And you know, I'm uh, I suffer from uh, depression. Uh, I, I'm uh, you know on uh, medication for it. And you know, I remember when we were putting this together, I thought, uh, you know, let's do some fun stuff. Like, you know, my my gut instinct is always like, let's go to, you know, Stanley Kubrick. Let's go to, you know, some uh, some obscure French stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I thought, oh, hell with it. You know, like, uh, let, let's do Barbarella and Mars Attacks. <laughs> and, you know, I think we were kind of on the same page and vibing in the same direction there. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I keep looking at this list we've got to this series. And I'm really looking forward to it. There's some great stuff. And kicking off with Godzilla. From 1954 as well, you know, is is um, you know Godzilla's been rebooted a number of times of late. You know, um, uh, the, the Japanese re- uh, released uh, Shin Godzilla in, in 2017, uh, in 2016 the American Godzilla came out, and then you had more recently Godzilla King of Monsters. So he's he's back in the mainstream really, um, but. Th- w- Britain and America and Japan obviously have very different relationships with this sort of the kaiju and that sort of thing. Um, but as an American, sort of like Julian, what what's your take on Godzilla? Because he seems quite big over there, you know, as a, as a character. Well, I mean, we like uh, mass destruction. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Hollywood is not known for its subtle messages. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we like shit to blow up. Uh, we're the home of Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Godzilla is kind of uh, right up our alley, I think, in, in that respect. And plus, you know, we also love, you know, there's been a, f- my entire life, there's been a kind of like fetishization of Japan. Um, and, you know, I remember in the old days, we've talked about like Akira, mm. how, you know, we had to like get anime on, you know, VHS tapes and, you know, had to track this stuff down. And, you know, it was like this whole other world. And I think that uh, anything Japanese, especially, was sort of um, beloved. And, and if it was a little weird, you know, it was charmingly weird to Americans. Mm. So I think that plays into it, too. What about uh, Britain? Yeah, never really. It never really. I mean, it, Godzilla never didn't cross my radar until I was in my twenties. Really, you know. I think well, actually, no, the first time Godzilla really crossed my radar was the American remake, the, the Matthew Broderick one. Um, Classic. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that, that's what cinemas were made for. Um, I remember watching it thinking, "This isn't a bad film. This is quite good fun." And then you know, digging as I always do, doing a little bit of researching. Oh, there's like thirty odd of the films that, that in, the, in the Toho sort of uh, back catalogue, and they're all variety of things from um, weirdly comic, you know, comedic through to quite serious. And it coming back to this film, but um, no, but he has like no real presence in the culture over here. Like it, he doesn't, you know, it doesn't land really. Um, probably more so now with. The, the new Godzilla, but for me, yeah, it's always been. I, in fact, I take you can. I couldn't go to like you know Amazon.co.uk or I couldn't go to HMV. I could not pick up Godzilla on Blu-ray or DVD in this country. You can't. Really? Get, yeah, you cannot get the Toho films on Blu-ray. You can. The, the Criterion did a release recently, didn't they? Like a big box set of the Showa era stuff. That's the mm-hmm. first time that it has been released on physical media in this country. Um, the BFI released this film, which is what I've got um, mm. for the original. <clears throat> and then I've got the American versions. And then Shin Godzilla got released. But the, I, And I've got like a, a German version of the 1985 one, uh, which I just picked up sort of by accident. Um, but yeah, other than that, you, you know, I, I've had to sort of find them online on different ways. And they're starting to appear in sort of like odd ways on Amazon. Amazon Prime's got a couple now. I'm not sure... They're the legit ones, though. They may, not be, <laughs> they may not be there very long. Um, but, yeah, it, it just doesn't seem to have much of a presence over here. It's bizarre. Yeah, I, I don't know that Godzilla is sort of beloved over here. I mean, mm. I think that when we've done those, like, I remember the Broderick one, it was kind of like, Godzilla is something that everybody knows, but I mm. don't know how much people ever liked. Mm. I think that, you know, the Broderick one was sort of like, okay, everybody knows this, so, you know, let's throw a bunch of money at it and see if we can't make a blockbuster. And it was sort of like post-Jurassic Park, so they, you know, obviously it's got those tiny Godzillas, you know, so the whole second half is basically Jurassic Park in New York. Um, You know, so they were kind of hedging their bets a little there. But I think that, you know, like Godzilla has name recognition, but I don't know how much, you know, anyone knows about Godzilla or is really a fan. Mm. Having said that, I mean, I remember uh, basically like grew up on Godzilla. I mean, there were Godzilla movies on TV um, and they were always sort of like I uh, random, you know, movies. Uh, you know, I remember 
you know, Mechagodzilla and Mothra, and now like, uh, I guess it's, uh, we have a channel Comet over here that I watch a lot. That's like a sci-fi mm. channel and they play sort of the cheap stuff, right? They play the stuff that doesn't cost a lot of money to license. So, and they play a lot of Godzilla stuff and mm. it's random stuff. It's like, you know, Mecha Godzilla, and, you know, you see a lot of that stuff. So growing up, um, I mean, there was a kind of fun of just kind of, making lists of sort of like, hey, what weird uh, other kaiju do you know about? Yeah, it's it's, it's odd because it's definitely seemed to be taking, it's it's growing. And like you say, you know, um, it's not something that's over, been over here, but I've seen it on, you know, it seems to be appearing a little bit on Amazon Prime. I recently watched um, uh, Godzilla versus uh, Mechagodzilla or the Cosmic Monster. And then there's a sequel to that, which I watched both fine but like you say, really sort of like low budget kind of fare, you know, and because some of this is still new to me, especially the older stuff, the 60s and 70s stuff, like, you know, it's got these weird sort of sci-fi subplots and then these guys in suits running around sort of beating the crap out of each other. It reminds me more of like the 90s Power Rangers than anything else. And obviously that's that sort of seems to be where it comes from. I think that's where Power Rangers has clearly got that origin. Um, But Mm -hmm. I'm watching it going like, yeah, this is, this... Maybe it just didn't reach. I didn't reach it at the right age, you know. If I'd have watched this as a kid or so, it probably would have been like, "This is amazing." Um, <laughs> I'm watching it and I'm thinking, like, "Yeah, it's not not all that good." You know, some of it's the the ones where Godzilla is a destroyer, like a destructor, like you know, like the original, like the '85 one, and some of the more modern. I, I prefer those to sort of Godzilla versus something. I, I yeah. find those a bit daft. No, I agree. I mean, I think those are you know those are sillier. And I think that, you know, I always think of like how in comics, everyone gets their uh, multiple versions of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like you start with Batman and then you get Robin and pretty soon you've got Catwoman and then you've got like, you know, uh, this Batman and that Batman and there's, you know, Superman and then there's Supergirl and then there's, you know, Bizarro and, you know, you just get these multiple versions. Mm-hmm. And after a while, a franchise that kind of does that just increasingly gets into kind of silly territory and the original novelty of like, there's a guy who can fly from Krypton is sort of like, yeah, that's not really where it's at anymore. It's more like you've got to accept this whole family of monsters in the case of Godzilla. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think those are sort of, those are sillier. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the, the 54 film, I'm glad that, you know, you made me watch it. Is because um, it, it doesn't have any of that. I mean, it's much mm. more a kind of classic monster movie that um, does not presume that you're already on board with Godzilla, and so we can just introduce a Mecha Godzilla in the first twenty minutes and just yeah. have the fight. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing. I mean, I had watched this before, but I because I'd watched dipped into those other ones. I'd forgotten the tone of this film, and that was the thing that struck me first, like. Those other ones are very, you know, they've got very sci-fi elements or they've got like a spy plot or something else or there's a journalist trying to investigate something and, mm. you know, they've got those sort of more, more adventure elements, sort of like, you know, boys, almost like a boy's own adventure kind of stuff and then Godzilla on top of that. Um, this is a really sombre film. <laughs> like there's moments in this, there are moments in this film, like, you know, where I was quietly taken aback watching it my Oh yeah, no, this is they, they really are making a statement with this film. Like you know, it's 
this isn't a fun romp. This is <laughs> this is set out to say something. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of struck me really that, 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 you know, that was the case. Yeah. I mean, I think what I like least about this film is the whole like uh, oxygen bomb nonsense mm -hmm. um, that's used to, to kill Godzilla, which is so stupid and, and, and such a sort of like an, an element that one would expect from those 70s sort of silly sci-fi stuff. I mean, so that is there. But the stuff, I mean, the scenes of devastation, especially after the the main uh, Godzilla attack, I won't say climactic because it's not really the climax. Mm. It's it's the worst attack kind of, you know, two thirds of the way through, um, you know, is, is there. And it's so obviously a reference to World War II. I mean, the shadow of World War II hangs over this so strongly. And I think that my whole life... Um, you know, it's like there there are the conventional interpretations of things, right? So, like, if anyone mentions invasion of the body snatchers, people, you know, instantly think, oh, well, that's communism, right? Yeah. You know, think about it. Ha ha, you know, this is a standard interpretation. Godzilla, well, you know, uh, it's Hiroshima, you know, think about it, you know. Um, and that is really absolutely clear in this. It's mm -hmm. not hidden at all. And it, it really is a film that is wrestling with World War II. And I think ultimately, you know, I have a theory about this. And I think ultimately uh, wrestling with World War II, but also um, exonerating Japan in a way that is troubling. Yeah, I actually, you see, we'll get into that in a minute because there was something, uh, I'll be interested in what you say, because I, I agree to an extent in, in an odd way. Um, and I find that there's a character called uh, Shirazawa, the uh, scientist, and he sort of seems to act as that in that way. Um, and provide some of those sort of statements of intent. And, um, you know, just to give a, a for instance, there's, there's one where he's been interviewed. There's a journalist trying to interview him about certain things. And he says um, he has this oxygen destroyer, you know, bomb or device, whatever. He's not saying it's rather silly. But when the journalist says, oh, here, you've got this thing. And I heard it from this guy. And I heard it from, who's got, a friend, you know, who's got your German friend. And he makes out straight away, he's like, I have no German friends. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even in the film, though, they're trying to distance themselves of like, no, like, no, like, we, you know, that, <laughs> that's not us anymore. Um, and so, yeah, that really sort of struck out at me. Like, that sounds like a really weird comment. But in the context of what this film's trying to mm -hmm. say, it's like, you know, it's Japan saying, no, we, you know, we, we're not connected with them anymore. <laughs> like, that's, uh, that's not us. Um, I think the other thing. That, yeah, that's a really good catch. Yeah. I, you know. I think one of the things I, I looked into off the back of this was how long was American occupation of Japan? Um, and American, the Americans didn't leave officially until 52. So this came out two mm -hmm. years after American occupation. Um, so, and that sort of seems to sort of be there as well, I think in a little, in, you know, I get hints of it in a weird way, but um, yeah, it, it, there's a lot to talk about in some of these films. But before we do, I just, we just want to say that so, so we've got it was released in 1954, re-released in America in 1956, with the heavily edited and, and other scenes edited. We won't be talking about that. Um, it was directed by uh, Ishiro Honda, written by uh, Takeo uh, Murata. I'm going to butcher some of these names. Murata. Uh, it stars Takashi uh, Shimuru, Shimura uh, at bloody hell. Akiko Murata, <laughs> Akira uh, Takarada, Momoko Koki, and uh, Fuyuki Murakami. They were the main guys. I just want to sort of get that in, really. But um, 
just you know that's the main cast. I'm not even going to go to the plot because it's it's the main thing. But you say about the, the, the I'll let you get into your theory first because um, I've got some there were some also things that popped out to me. But what's so what's your theory about Japan trying to exonerate itself in in, in this through this film? Well, I mean, I, I've done some you know read history books on Japan, um, and you know one of the primary uh, things I think it's important to understand about sort of post-war Japan is a kind of reinvention of Japan mm. that, you know, in the same way that like uh, once Japan opened itself up to commerce, you know, it, it reinvented itself. I mean, the emperor was not always divine, you know, uh, this is believed to, you know, have gone back to ancient times. It's not at all. It's, this is all sort of myth-making. And one of the key aspects of uh, Japanese national myth-making in the post-war period is this idea of Japan as having somehow always been peaceful, right? That, you know, Japan was this peaceful nation that, you know, uh, and, and, and it's true, it's inscribed in the post-war constitution mm. imposed by America, yeah. right? I mean, this is... You know, so and that gets you into the whole thing of like outward pressure. And, you know, there's this myth that, you know, Japan, even among a lot of Japanese, that Japan is only capable of like changing course in response to outside pressure. But uh, for me, like, you know, this movie opens uh, outside of Tokyo, right? Mm -hmm. It opens on Odo Island, right? Which is a totally pastoral fishing village right it, it reminded me of like rosalini's stromboli you know just yeah. like these primitive people they're just fishing yeah. um and it's beautiful but it's just like this is not at all this is an idyllic sort of innocent depiction of japan um and it's not that those people didn't exist but those people were told die for the emperor right mm. the americans are coming grab a knife butcher your elderly parents and kill everybody who lands now, the average Japanese obviously did not do that, you know, did not follow the emperor. But, you know, the reality is that this is a kind of like wallpapering over of, you know, any kind of Japanese militarism is just totally non-existent. And then when you get to Tokyo and, and the, the monsters attack, uh, again, you know, there's a clear, you know, Tokyo's burning it's very dramatic. This is obviously a kind of reference to the um, the Allied and American bombing raids, you know, which were war crimes and, and basically burned down every major Japanese city to the ground. Um, and, you know, was terrific, was traumatic for the Japanese and understandably so. Um, and then you have, you know, sort of the, the atomic bomb references. And so, you know, one of the most... Um, uh, impression making uh, scenes is you know a scientist holding a geiger counter to a to a small child um and it's it's heartbreaking and it really does not pull any punches but again this is this depiction of like japan you know why did they bomb us you know like we're, we yeah. were this peaceful uh fishing people and then we had this uh terrible uh devastation visited upon us um and so in the same way that, you know, I think a lot of times Japan's uh, obvious military, ag military aggressivists, um, you know, during the war is papered over and instead we get an emphasis on, you know, Japan as victim, which, you know, to be fair, was a victim. Again, 
those cities were destroyed in firebomb mm. raids. Um, but you know, talk to the talk to the Koreans or the Chinese about this idea of a peaceful Japan in World War Two. You know, no, that's really interesting about them. You know, because again, it was as you say, the constitution that was forced on them by, or created for them by the Americans. It says it removed their right to wage war, didn't it? So that was sort of mm-hmm. became sort of the, the the one of their things. Um, I, I totally agree with this idea of becoming the victim. You know, it is it's this idea that sort of like. Um, because I was in watching it, you know, and everyone's as you said, so, you know, think Godzilla represents the H bomb and all this other stuff. And I, I almost think that's too that's too much of a simplification. That really, like you say, there's that there's a scene in during the devastation. You've got the people running around, and it's you know, the miniatures are actually pretty good in this. The city's burning. You have the silhouette of Godzilla, you know, sort of like roaring that recognizable roar, and the flames. It looked great. But it's more than the H-bomb, isn't it? It's that fear. If for Godzilla, to me, is more a fear of um, outside. That is that outside pressure, that outside destruction. It's what. It's not just the H-bomb. It's everything. Godzilla is this monster. This sort of the outside world will come in and it will batter us, and it will. <laughs> and that's it was, so. It always felt more to me than the H-bomb. Um, and there's a weird thing in this film about like, the duality, almost like the old versus the new, um, that keeps cropping up. Like you, you say about the, this fishing village, it's sort of the, the first place that they go to. It's also the first time, the first place that you get to meet Godzilla on Odo Island. And, and the, 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 the three things that really popped up to him was the first time he attacked, you don't see Godzilla for ages. Well, the first, I'll tell you what, the rever- we'll get on to it. The first reveal of Godzilla like, is bizarre. You wouldn't do it in a modern movie. Like he, he literally just pops his head over a hill, like sort of peekaboo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it does look cool, does. right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it gives you that idea of size, you know. Um, but uh, but the thing, like when you see the, the first, I think it's meant to be like his first attack. It's depicted as like a natural disaster. Like it's accompanied by a storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see things being blown over, and you don't really see Godzilla, but you you know that he's part of the destruction. So there's this sort of duality of like a natural disaster paired with this creature that's that's accidentally created by science. Um, and then later, you get the, the, there's an old rural man on the beach, like the old farmer, the old dude who sort of sits there, and he's the one who names it Godzilla. Uh, and it's some, it's like some Japanese legend. It's it's sort of out of you know these things, and it's so good. It's so King Kong. Cause he says, "Oh well, we're gonna have to sacrifice the virgin to it because this is what happens. It's what we used to do." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, <laughs> how you're not that old? How long ago was this?" Um, but then that's obviously paired with all the scientists turn up with all the technology. So there's this real duality of old versus new, and it seems to come to a head. There's a scene in. It's just like a public debate scene, or uh, it's like a, it's almost like a parliament or something. And there's all these like st- stuffy guys in suits, and then these are like, angry women saying, "You've got to tell the public it's fact. We've got to be just honest and truthful." And then these are like, these guys in suits again. No, shut up! He literally tells us to shut up. Um, and he's like, "You know, you can't do that. It'll cause panic and sort of stuff." And there does seem to be this sort of rocking back and forth for Japan of the old versus the new. And like, where do we sit in this? Like, I don't know where, you know, as a country. Um, and that seems to just keep popping up throughout the film. Well, and I think that reflects, you know, this sort of post-war period mm. that that is kind of um, taking stock of, of Japanese traditions, uh, but at the same time, very much aware that it's in a sort of, um, 
you know, post-atomic world and painfully aware. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we had a very similar debate, you know, in my town about uh, climate change, where, you know, the women were saying, it's the truth, you've got to release this. And all the town elders were saying, no, people don't tell people, science doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, yeah, I mean, I like the I like the old man. There is this sort of, I mean, I love the first reveal of Godzilla. Mm. I mean, to me, I like it. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a great structural movie in terms of its plot, but I like the sort of slow reveal, right? Mm. I mean, I like there's this monster, but you just see part of him over the ridge, you know, and it's like, all right, we've heard his sound. We've seen it, but, you know, you're holding back on the full devastation until the climax. And I think that's something that I fault current movies for that, you know, if this, you know, every, every movie has got to start with the big devastation, right. You know, to give you that gut punch and, you know, so, I mean, if this were made today, you know, I mean, it starts with a terrible scene, you know, where you just see Godzilla full on, mm. he demolishes stuff, you know, it's got to start with an action sequence. And I think this sort of like slow reveal is uh, is really good. I do think that, you know, among the things that don't make sense, you're right that, uh, you know, there's this sort of uh, the coast battered by the storm. And in that testimony, they, uh, you know, a Japanese man says, you know, this was not a normal hurricane, you know, and somebody says like, I, it was an animal. <laughs> it's like, how did you not see this, yeah. right? Um, and there's even a shot where you see the sort of fishing village and you see the coast and you can see this sort of like, you know, cheap special effect of sort of like a um, uh, white light in mm. the water. Uh, and you can see it from the coast. Yeah. So it's like if these if these fishing vessels, you know, have been sunk by this monster and, you know, you could see that monster from the shore. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, it, it just happened because they say about the opening. I do like, say there are, there are a couple of moments where, like you say, structurally, it does, it's, it's not great because it, it sort of repeats itself, doesn't it? It's sort of like the opening scene is um, a, I think it's meant to be a military ship or of some kind. And mm -hmm. they get attacked, but you never see quite what it. You just see a flash of light. Um, and then the ship, you just see the ship burning and that sort of thing. And again, I think this sort of goes back to this, the... Um, iconography of the bomb isn't it the great flash and then just the devastation and so you mm -hmm. see the ship going so i think that you're almost meant to think that you know they make, make that association and then they basically send out another ship and it goes oh same thing um because yeah. even the people are asking like well why have you just sent this other ship or these two other ships it's the same things happened um and so yeah the, the first sort of like 15 minutes or so of this film they're a little bit odd because it just sort of the pacing seems or what they decide to do is, is a bit bizarre, but I like the fact that there is a mystery. You know, they save um, mm -hmm. some of the they save some of the sailors. They bring them back, and they're clearly sort of like you know uh, affected by it. They're injured and other stuff like. And there is this thing at, at one point. There's a scene where um, I don't know if he's mentioned like the prime minister or whoever like says, oh, you know, re really, we've only saved three people. Like this is not good. Like there's an acknowledgement that it's a bit of a cock up. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, no point are they like, look, this is a monster sort of ripping people apart. Like, there's an acknowledgement, <laughs> like, look, this, yeah, this doesn't look good. Like, you know, we have to do something more. Um, so this film's constantly populated by these debates of like, you know, like, how should we, uh, how should we approach this? Um, and they, they seem to become more decisive. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm surprised there's no decision. 
um, later on about or debate about whether or not they should ex- you know evacuate because that's that's the thing now, isn't it? You, you if you have an American film or even a modern Japanese film, there'd be a a scene where they're like, we can't evacuate the city or we should evacuate the city, but that's not really mentioned in this. There's literally a scene where they're like, right, we're going to evacuate this massive area, and everyone's like, yeah, all right, yeah, all right, we'll do that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, a couple things come to mind about what you're saying. I mean, one is that I think there's this kind of divide between obviously, you know, sort of Tokyo at the end and uh, Odo Island early on. And I think that sometimes in America, we, you know, or in the West, we imagine Japan as one unified culture. Uh, You know, and the reality is, you know, Japan is a archipelago and, uh, you know, there are plenty of islands that have um, subcultures Mm -hmm. and that uh, some of the subcultures are discriminated against and seen as sort of backwards, primitive, not fully Japanese. Um, You know, Japanese culture is complex and heterogeneous. And I think that there is that kind of like urban rural split uh, that you see early on. Um, And so like at the same time that the Japanese are depicted as victims in this movie, um, the movie is also making fun of like, you know, yeah, on that island, there could be, you know, an old man who's like, we used to sacrifice versions (laughs) to it, you know. Yeah, it, it, it does seem like they say there's a Japan seems to have sort of like, and that's what I say about the duality. Like, from a cultural standpoint, there's clearly this sort of, um, you know, the government at the, in the middle, the scientists who are educated, they're well funded, they've clearly got the right technology. Um, and then these sort of like, you know, hick fishermen living on this island that at one, <laughs> at one point you literally see people running towards Godzilla with samurai swords and like sticks. <laughs> Yeah, they've got staffs and stuff, and you're thinking like, yeah, it's not going to do much. I don't, I don't think. And <laughs> then you go, you get the reveal. So there is, there's clearly this sort of, yeah, almost. I don't know. I don't know the the, the director's sort of stance on this, but it is, it's almost like a poking fun at the old, isn't it? That sort of, um, you still believe these ridiculous ideas, or you still <laughs> think that that cultural thing is is relevant or whatever, um, when it's not. So yeah, it's an odd. It's definitely an odd film. I don't know whether it's sort of pro Japan or not. In some cases, yeah. I mean, I think it. I think it wants to be, but I mean, I, I think that you can be a work of uh, Japanese nationalist propaganda and still, um, you know, and still mock the outer islands and mock, you know, these sort of subcultures. Um, I mean, I think that is contained within a kind of Japanese nationalism. Um, I mean, the other thing that you're talking about, about like government, I think it's amazing the utter lack of government in this film. Mm. Um, I mean, you see this nice sort of like town council and, you know, the the sort of peasant women are saying, no, we demand the truth. You know, that sounds pretty heroic. But, you know, uh, you just hear the cities are being evacuated the main protagonists of authority are scientists, Mm -hmm. right? So again, this is kind of like, oh, you know, like you don't see the emperor. I mean, you see like some Japanese military, there's tanks and stuff. But like if this were a uh, present day American film, right? This would be entirely focused on, you know, the brave generals, you know, who are are taking on Godzilla. The generals are not important here. And I, I think this is also part of 
sort of Japanese myth making, um, you know, to sort of see like, well, we are a we are ambivalent about science. I think there's a kind of like Frankenstein like ambivalence about science and the dangers of the bomb. But there is this sort of national myth making, I think, going on in which um, in which Japanese or in which Japan is seen as a principally not just peaceful, but also a scientific nation mm. um, that excels in the sciences. And so the authorities are kind of scientists more than military people. Yeah, that's true. Because again, like I say, the main characters, are, they, they, they are scientists, aren't they? And they're, they're shown to be, you know, noble and, and um, you know, making the right decisions and, and, and asking some difficult questions. But yeah, at no point are they really of anyone of any authority i mean the, the the scientist who comes up with the oxygen destroyer um shirazawa shirazawa like he he's got it in his basement like that that mm-hmm. appears to be mm-hmm. his lab like it's a home lab in his basement and all i could think about more was like you, you, have you seen like the vincent price the fly like the original in that no, I have not. When we did the fly, yeah. I revealed I, I have not uh, seen it's, that. Um, it's very similar. It's this notion of, I think, obviously, to reduce the number of sets and all this other stuff. But there's, mm-hmm. there's this, there seems to be this notion in the 50s of these scientists who have got these sort of like extravagant and incredibly dangerous experiments just in their house. <laughs> it's just there. Um, uh, and it's, you don't, Scott? Yeah. I mean, I, I my my basement looks exactly like that, <laughs> loaded with electrodes and bubbling pots and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they're right next to the transformers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just I just find it hilarious, like you say, because there's in the modern thing now there is this sort of like you know you'd go to uh, some sort of government body and there'd be the reference to like the CDC or or you know some whatever other government body looks after this. Um, the environment, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency or something. But with this, it's just like, yeah, this scientist has come up with this thing to destroy that could kill. And they're all like, all right, well, we shall use that. Um, and whilst I really like the character of uh, Sirizawa, um, I do find it bizarre that like, uh, no, the only person that comes up, turns up to question him is a journalist who's heard about him. And then these two other people, like there's no one from the military or the government knocking on his door saying, We've got this national emergency. Um, we hear we hear you might be able to help. Yeah, I mean, there's a strange kind of disconnect there, right? Yeah. Where there are not these national figures that are important characters. Um, and I was thinking, like, as we were talking of how the military and the government is at this, you know, simultaneously sort of invisible in this film. Mm-hmm you kind of hear what they're doing as sort of like edicts, right? We're evacuating the city, but they're never depicted as characters, right? It's, they're just faceless. And then secondarily, uh, utterly incompetent. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I was thinking of like, well, we do see the military um, and we see them not just in the beginning, kind of with the ships vanishing, but, you know, one of their first plans to address Godzilla is to drop death charges. Yeah. Not going to help. Yeah. You know, like if you've seen any Godzilla movie, you're like, no, that's probably going to piss him off. You know, not a good idea. And then they have this, uh, the government has this ridiculous plan. That, oh, you know, yeah. It's certainly one of, you know, one of the most ridiculous <laughs> things. Like, well, 
you know, after it's clear it's Godzilla, you know, the way we're going to protect the population is to set up an electric fence along the border uh, with the ocean, right? Along the coastline of basically (laughs) like a a third of Japan, you know? And, (laughs) you know, this is one of the the worst special effects in the film where they've taken basically electric uh, power towers and just superimpose them over the coastline. And you think, you know, yeah, electric power towers are not <laughs> the same thing as an electric fence, but, you know, close enough if you add electrical fan, uh, effects. Um, and But again, you know, Godzilla is not phased. Yeah. I mean, he does not even seem wounded by this electricity. He just demolishes them. So there's this way in which government is both invisible but also incompetent. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. They seem to be like a hurdle at every point because, like you say, that you know, um, they have these moments of trying to do things, and then, and then I say it doesn't work, and they'll just sort of stumble onto the next. But even the military, when they're trying to prevent people from coming into Japan, uh, into uh, Tokyo, um, the scientists run up to them, and their response to be like, we, "We can't let you in. It's too dangerous. You can't go in." They're like, "But we're scientists." There's no explanation to like what that means. It's just like, with we're scientists, you have to let us in. And the soldiers a bit like, um, all right. Uh, and he, he ums and ahs, and they end up getting past. It's just it, it does seem a bit sort of they they do definitely seem ineffectual. I think throughout. Right, and I also find myself wondering, like, what do they know about these scientists? Like, there's this odd kind of, like, you know, for example, um. You know the uh, I'm screw up his name, but the scientist with the eye patch, Surizawa. Yes. Um, you know, the entire plot depends on him swearing uh, Amiko to uh, who I found quite a the star character for mm. me. But um, you know, he has her swear to secrecy about what he's developing. You know, this oxygen destroyer thing, and then. As soon as they've decided to use it, he's being interviewed by journalists about the oxygen yeah. destroyer, and they clearly know absolutely everything. And the entire and he says, like, well, yeah, I'll use this to stop Godzilla, but the world must never know. And then the very next scene, it's like the entire world knows. It's on the news. Um, so, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean I and I think that's similar to, to what you're saying about sort of like what is the relationship between these scientists and the press mm. and the military or the government? Yeah, it's really sort of unclear like where everything sits. Um and you know, to be fair, it doesn't impact on the story or anything, but it is really funny, like you say, he's sort of mm-hmm. swearing her to sort of secrecy. She tells one person, he's then interviewed, all of a sudden, like I say, it's on like uh, headline news across the world. We've got this oxygen-destroying yeah. device, and it's going to stop Godzilla. Um, and it, it is, I mean, it's, it's there for plot purposes. Um, but again, it's sort of like it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Surazawa, though, is an interesting character, and he's used in an interesting way. Like you know, he, his eye patch is clearly an indication. I can't remember if they actually mentioned, it, but it's clearly an indication of um, you know he's a holdover from the war in, in some way or. Um, but there's a scene where he's talking about the the oxygen just oxygen destroyer, and you know he says like, I, I did you know I, just, I created it almost by accident. The world cannot know about this because what happens is the government will weaponize it. Like you know that's their inevitable sort of conclusion of what they shall do with this. Um, so I can't tell anyone. And there's a moment in the scene I'm trying to say about the notes where he, he literally says like you know um, I, I have to stop this from becoming a weapon. 
right? And the camera's like dead on. And for about three or four seconds, it's just him looking straight at the audience um, of him saying, like, you know, I can't, I can't let this happen, can I? Right. And I'm sort of like, that's the, the, this is clearly the director asking the audience, like, you know, you're on board with it, aren't you? Mm. You know, we cannot be responsible for unleashing, you know, it happened to us. We cannot unleash a, a similar weapon on the world. And I found that quite interesting. Sort of like, you know, is he trying to project a, a question onto the audience? Because um, he provides them with an answer, but is he trying to project that onto the audience? I don't know. Well, and, you know, in the same way, like uh, Surizawa, he burns his notes, mm. right? You know, and, you know, Emiko cries. And, you know, obviously he is the heroic sacrifice of the film. I mean, he dies at the end. He sacrifices basically not necessarily his entire life's work, but, you know, his great discovery, um, you know, in the interest of peace. At the same time, you know, I, I'm so thrown out by the idea of burning the notes and Amico crying. And then the very next scene is like, you know, the press interviewing him yeah. about this thing. Like, well, you know, like the rest of the world is going to be like, wait a minute, an oxygen destroyer. And if you discover that in your basement, I'm pretty sure the Manhattan Project yeah. can duplicate. Right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I mean, we've poked a lot of fun at this, at this movie already, but you know, and there's stuff to, to laugh about, but you know, to get to your point about him sort of looking at the, at the camera and at the audience, um, I, you know, I love this movie. I'm really glad that you made me watch it. And um, while it's it's easy to poke fun and there's stuff that, that's funny and silly, um, that moment can't be denied. And I think that the message of this film, as, you know, as confused as it is and as, as, as much a part of, you know, sort of Japanese national myth-making, as I'd argue that it is, it's still a pacifist film. And it's a film about the horrors of war. It's a film that is uh, fundamentally, you know, a monster movie that is humanitarian. Um, so much of what's fun and, and awesome about this movie is Godzilla rampaging and terrible destruction. At the same time, those images, I mean, it's fun to see him kind of swat at uh, missiles fired by, you know, model jets and stuff. I mean, undeniably fun, right? And the city in flames. But that's always counterposed to um, these very humanitarian scenes of, um, you know, there's the uh, reporters who are in the broadcast tower that say sayonara and the tower falls. And you're like, oh, they're dead, yeah. you know? Like, they died yeah. kind of heroically briefing the public. Um, you know, and then you have... Um, you know, kids, uh, you know, not just the radioactive kid, but you, you know, you have uh, scenes of, uh, you know, kids struggling. I mean, there's that mother who says to her, uh, the Japanese wife with the two kids who says, just a little while and we'll be with your daddy. Yeah. And it's like heartbreaking. Yeah. It's like, whoa, this is some serious stuff. And that's in the middle of a Godzilla yeah. rampage. So, you know, I mean, it, it's great fun. But I, I mean, what you're getting at is there is a heart to this film. And as confused as it is, as much as, you know, we can we can take it apart and deconstruct aspects and, and talk about its cultural situation, um, it is a pro-pacifism film. Mm. And it does depict the horrors of war, even amidst a sort of a celebration of monstrous destruction. 
on cellular. Yeah, it's 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 it's, and this is why sort of what Godzilla became is what you know confuses me a little bit. Um, because you say that that's like the moment that middle section or late sort of second act section where he does where he sort of attacks Tokyo and it's the real destruction. And the moment I say, well, you have the woman like hugging those children in the street and she's saying, like, you know, yeah, you'll see your daddy soon. Like you say, you're like, Jesus Christ, that, that, that comes <laughs> out of nowhere. You're like, oh, all right, that's a bit of a gut punch. And then it's followed up and there's literal sort of uh panning of the devastation. So the city is destroyed. And then it goes to the hospital and you have that girl looking into the camera while she's being monitored with a Geiger counter, which is an obvious sort of like, you know, reference. But then there's a moment you've got a group of kids watching over, um, uh, you know, as their, their mother, I think it was their mother, is being covered over to be carried away. And the, the, the sound of a howling child in, you know, in absolute grief. That, and it doesn't last like a couple of seconds. Like it lasts like a good 15 mm-hmm. seconds. And I wasn't like, yeah, this film's not messing around. Like this section of the film is basically saying to you, um, and uh, you know, again, like you say, this is why I think Godzilla is more than the bomb. It's this fear of like just something coming and battering them. It's a real fear of war in general. Um, because there's a moment when Godzilla, when this just before the Tokyo attack happens, you have some of the main characters and they're around there. There's the older guy, and then the sort of the two the the uh, uh Hamiko, the the young girl, and then the the, the guy, mm-hmm. and he sort of they hear the noise, the alarm goes off, and the old guy says, "Godzilla has come," and the way he says it is like it's just inevitable, and to me that just says to me this is a country that's like, look, this is I don't know whether they're thinking like this is gonna happen again, you know, it's almost like there's an, an inevitability to this level of destruction, um, and it, it like I say it's not I, that's why I think this is more than just a hangover of the war this is a hangover of sort of the american occupation and the way that they were forced into some of the cultural changes it's just a this is a representation of a country that's just had the crap kicked out of it for over a decade it's just a bit like i'm just tired (laughs) this is how we feel um and i just find that really so i say that it has got a real heart in that sense yeah absolutely um Interesting thing, that line, you know, Godzilla has come is the one line that was retained in the porn parody. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I mean, yeah, I mean, in that that depiction of the real horrors of war, um, you know, obviously that is not unknown to the people making this film. And I think it's something that is so missing from disaster movies, mm-hmm. from superhero movies. Um, I think you can thrill to the monster. You can thrill to, you know, a superhero fight in a city. You can thrill to, uh, you know, an alien invasion. Um, but it's so important to kind of ground these things in, yeah, not only are there real casualties, but they're not all just, uh, people who go down in the the falling building and you say, oh, well, that's an adult man who cares, you know, or mm-hmm. noble sacrifice, you know, a guy in his car that gets shredded by, you know, the alien or whatever, um, you know, focusing on the kids, you know, I mean, there, there's a kind of like unrelenting willingness to say, yeah, there are uh, effects of this. This is not all fun disaster and death and mass carnage while it's thrilling to see on screen um 
means uh, a Japanese wife with her kids. It means kids saying goodbye to their parents. It means, uh, you know, real just heartbreak and devastation. And I think that that is, you know, a fundamental, I mean, it's so important to me that that is depicted in mm -hmm. film and it is depicted in our fantasies. Um, and I think, you know, especially as an American, you know, one of the biggest exports of my country has been uh, Hollywood and sort of special effects blockbusters. Um, and one of the things that I think has been most damaging to people has been, you know, sort of the idea that, yeah, you're going to ride the blast wave, mm -hmm. right? You're going to be, you're going to jump down 30 feet and, you know, you're going to land in a superhero punch, mm -hmm. you know, on the ground and you're going to be fine. And humans are just battered around in these movies and they're always either uh, unnamed characters who you might see die and, or, you know, somebody makes a sacrifice, but it's never heartbreaking the way it is in this movie. And people survive absurdly when they really shouldn't. And, and I think that, you know, it makes us um, comfortable with violence and comfortable with, uh, with death. And, and, and we see it in a kind of antiseptic way as a result. And this movie is so committed to not letting you have that antiseptic feeling. And I think that's noble and, and important. Yeah, it, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, you know, whilst watching this, um, I have sort of like smushed it in with other monster movies. And I thought, you know, to do that, I thought I'll check out some of the, you know, the modern ones. And I watched the 1985 Godzilla, which I do kind of enjoy. Uh, but there's still that thrill of the destruction. You know, it's still that sort of the beating of the city. Uh, and I watched recently, I watched Rampage, which is the sort of based on the Atari game with The Rock mm -hmm. in it. And it's amazingly good fun. Like, it's one of the dumbest films like, I've mm -hmm. ever watched. It's, such, it's amazingly good fun. But there's a moment that The Rock literally gets shot in the stomach and then runs around for another 20 minutes. Of, he fights monsters for the next 20 minutes. And I'm still thinking, like, yeah, that's what you, this is exactly what you're saying. Like this, this um, invulnerability um, that these characters have. However, recently I've also watched a couple of like disaster movies, and there was two really. I, I ended up watching weirdly just films that came out parallel. I watched Volcano and Dante's Peak. Um, I don't, I don't highly recommend either of them. They're fine. They're you know they are what they are. But there seems to be a trait or a trope, I should say, sorry, of disaster films, which is sort of in this, in Godzilla, um, these sort of like, you know, this thing of devastation and, and the people and, and being impacted is there to tell a story. It's there to make a point of, the, like you said, the horrors of war. But with disaster films, it's used really to pull at your heartstrings. You know, like they, they choose a person that's going to make that heroic sacrifice. So, in um you know spoilers for those films but in volcano uh someone saves a bunch of people from an underground train in los angeles um and uh, ends up having to jump into the lava to then throw somebody off to save them and alive. Um, and, you know it, it, yeah. it, it they they melt as well which is like that's not how lava works but there you go yeah. um, and there's a similar thing in dante's pete where an old woman sacrifices herself to save a couple of kids and you're like this isn't showing you're, you know, you're showing the potential impact of the disaster, you know, you say like the horrors of war or the horror of a natural disaster, but you're doing it to to pull at the audience's heartstrings rather than to say, this disaster is going to mess with people and can really have an impact. 
And I think that's where the difference is. They've sort of, it's that thing they said, was it Hollywood learns the wrong lessons? Like they will look at that scene of the crying child and go, oh, that really tugged at my heartstrings. Yeah, we've got to put some of that in because the audiences love that kind of stuff. <laughs> Not that that's telling the story of how the Japanese people were battered and, and this sort of thing, you know, by war and everything else. It's, it, like you say, it, it's the, the wrong lessons seem to get learned, I think, sometimes from these films. Yeah, um, I think that's poignant. I think I'm really bothered mm. by it. Um, and, I, and I think I, I have seen those two movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think the, the Volcano one is really <laughs> awful. Um, I thought I saw that in theaters, actually. Um, but yeah, you know, the other thing is, um, what's the ethnicity of those uh, two noble sacrifices? Oh, yeah, both uh, white. One's a white male, and one's a white female. So yeah, right. I mean, so it, it seems to me that there's a kind of um, way in which that's training us to see um, disaster as an opportunity for heroism you know and for this sort of noble sacrifice and it occurs to me that we're recording this in the middle of a global mm -hmm. pandemic um that in my country has killed over a hundred thousand people and is increasing at the number one rate in the world as well as the uh number one raw numbers and number one uh deaths per capita um and so you know it occurs to me that we sometimes will say like, well, uh, I, you know, I'm willing to die, right? I'm willing to sacrifice myself. Um, and, you know, and people will take risks. They'll climb a mountain, they'll ride a motorcycle, or they'll risk dying from a disease. Um, what we don't think about is that all of these things in life are not about somebody mm -hmm. dying. Somebody dying isn't the worst thing. Uh, you know, you can play with your life. You can you can do what you want. Um, what's terrible is what happens to those kids. What's terrible What's terrible is um, you know a kid growing up without a father and the psychological damage that causes. Um, you know, people watching their loved ones die. People um, mourning and going through lifelong pain and lifelong trauma over what they've witnessed and the loss of their loved ones. It's not as easy as just, you know, somebody, you know, heroically sacrificed themselves and they died. It's all these kind of like ancillary mm. effects. Um, and it seems to me that Godzilla depicts that. Um, you know, you have these parents, you have these kids and you know, you know, uh, this is not just, uh, you know, a kid being squashed it's a kid is going to die slowly from radiation poisoning probably over the next several months his parents are going to watch him die his friends are going to deal with i mean how do you deal with the fact that you know you're four or five and you've had multiple childhood friends die slowly of yeah. radiation you know i mean this it's not as simple as just somebody's died isn't you know here's the death count here's the heroic sacrifice um it's the full humanity. And I think that we miss that humanity and we have trained ourselves in Hollywood to miss that humanity to the point where even where those scenes, to your point, are duplicated by Hollywood, the message is like, oh, well, just give that heart tugging moment of sacrifice without any recognition of the underlying 
messy uh, ancillary consequences of mm. being human. Well, it's one of those things that, I mean, you know, this, this is a, a sci-fi podcast, but we'll get on to superheroes a little bit. But um, it's something that, like you say, because the biggest blockbusters at the moment are the, the, the superhero ones. And it's become a thing that, like you say, to to completely avoid that level of sort of engagement with the, you know, the, the impact on humanity. I mean, you know, they had the whole, what is it, God, it's like 40 bloody minutes of Man of Steel of Superman and Zod destroying Metropolis. <clears throat> and, you know, and then when that sort of people rebelled against that, and we're like, yeah, you you basically had him just levelling us, the hero levelling a city and didn't address the human impact. And so they did try to address it in the next film, but they handled it, in my opinion, very, very poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, instead of trying to sort of go, yeah, this is going to happen and these are the consequences and we have to deal with this on a human level and this other stuff. They sort of paint it in that in the usual heroic disaster fashion of, well, we will carry on and, you know, stiff up a lip if it's British or whatever. And then by the end of it, they're like, and this is for all of the heroes as well. Right, well, by the end of the film, we can't do that again. So we're going to find a deserted island off the coast of Metropolis and we'll have our fight there. <laughs> and it's the same every time, you know, like you said, Endgame, uh, Avengers Endgame was exactly the same. It's sort of, you're going to have this massive, epic sort of like, you know, um, battle between like, you know, these these great superheroes and these, these space villains and Thanos and his army. Blah, blah. Where are we going to have it? Well, he's going to destroy the Avengers compound, which we have quite clearly established is out of the way of everybody else. <laughs> um, so it's, it's almost instead of, you know, they don't want us to think about it anymore. They want, us, they want it to be detached. They want mm-hmm. it to be a separate thing. Um, you know, there's no, you know, I think that's the thing now to the extent of even like, um, the, the, the last time they tried to do it was a little bit, I suppose it was the first Avengers film, but then ever since then, like there haven't been any sort of human, uh, I suppose they did it again a little bit in the age of Ultron, but the enemies, like they'll, they'll have robots, they'll have aliens, they'll have mutants, da, 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 da. like, you know, we can kill and we can destroy and we can do all this other stuff because the impact is minimal because it's not human. And they just don't want you to think about it anymore. And I think it's it's a shame because it should be a part of the conversation, really. Yeah, and, and I agree completely. And I, and I think that when you look at, uh, I mean, when you look at what effect that has, right? I mean, what we're being sold on is we're being sold on the joy of mm. violence, right? We're being sold on action. And I, and I think there's nothing wrong with the joy of violence. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with loving, you know, Godzilla setting Tokyo on fire. I mean, in the same way, I don't think there's anything wrong with an alien invasion movie where you see, you know, cities being destroyed. Um, it's okay to thrill at that. But I think that at the same time, we it's so important to not lose sight of, not sanitize mm. violence. Um you know, I am so upset every time I see, uh, I mean, I think you're entirely right in everything that you've said, but I mean, to go one step further and think about every action movie in which, you know, people are just running through and they're shooting guys and, you know, and, you know, guys just, they get shot and they're just dead, right? They fall down the stairs. They're just dead. They don't lie there. Uh, you know, the reality is it is really hard to kill somebody mm-hmm. with a knife, you know, it's almost impossible. I mean, you really have to have somebody on the ground and slit their throat. It's messy. It's terrible. You don't just stab somebody in the stomach. They lie there in pain Mm. for hours. You know, when you're shot, 
you don't normally yeah. just die. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you know, your bowels loosen, you know, your, your body makes noise, you're in pain, uh, you're in agony. Imagine if, you know, every time Tom Cruise ran through a corridor blissfully mm. shooting people, you saw them in agony against the wall, just, you know, in terrible pain. It smells, it's ugly, you know, uh, EMTs have to come in and be traumatized. Like, look at this site, there are all these dead people, you know, they're, half of them are still alive and are probably going to die. Um, you know, sanitizing all of this makes violence something that is... Um, not just enjoyable, which I think, you know, is a part mm -hmm. of fiction, uh, maybe a part of the human brain. I can live with that, but um, to sanitize it makes it um, easy for us to dehumanize and depersonalize the victims of violence and to accept violence as something normative and, um, and also acceptable to inflict upon our uh, fellow citizens and, and foreign countries. Um, and I think it's, it, you know, to get back to Godzilla, you know, uh, if those movies make it, you know, acceptable, you know, in my country to, uh, to say, well, you know, a kid was shot by the police, that's sad, but, you know, he's dead, um, you know, that's a thing that happens. Um, well, we've invaded, you know, a country, there's, you know, 100,000 uh, or 500,000 dead Iraqis due to that invasion. Well, that's mm. a number, right? Those aren't, um, those aren't, you know, people like you see suffering in Godzilla. Um, and I think you can make those calls. I mean, you can decide whatever you want to think about, uh, you know, police or about any given war, um, but you should not pretend that there isn't a remainder, right? You should not pretend that there aren't kids who aren't going to have mm. a parent. I think, yeah, and that's it. I think you know, every now and then these things are addressed. In, in, in a film will come along, and you know, you see the the reality, or as much as reality as can be tolerated in a, in a film, or the senses will allow. You know, I mean, uh, springing to mind, I'm thinking of the first sort of you know the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, um, or. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something I'm, I'm going to spit a bit of a Spielberg thing, but thinking like Schindler's List, or um, there, there's been other films that have addressed this thing of sort of like you know, like you say, um, yeah, you, you can't just shoot someone and they fall over and it's dead. It's not, it's not like you know, a computer game. And you do when you when you do see that, you do sort of go, yeah, that's horrific, and it really does sort of hit home. Um, you know, that level of violence is required to really take the human body apart. Uh, but to see the suffering, um, it's, it's, but again, it's that thing of taking it off the battlefield and seeing it and saying, actually, this is this is how this can impact on, on people. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about sort of like for, for, the other thing as well, from a Godzilla point of view is if you were to be, you know, I mean, I don't know what, where therapy was sort of in the 50s. I'm sure you know, it wasn't it probably wasn't as recognized. It definitely wasn't recognized as it was now. But like, as a, as a nation, as a bunch of kids, not only have you seen this devastation of your city, you now know, and granted, it's, one of them's been killed, right? But you would then live in fear for the rest of your life. Like, someone's, are you going to go swimming? I'm not. Are you kidding? Go in. Have you seen some of the monsters that live in that city? No. Like, this thing would devastate you psychologically. Like, you, you now know that 
A hundred and fifty foot monster lives in the sea. Um, it's it's yeah, you know, it's it's just um, I can imagine this like you know the, the real consequences. And they're the things that are never really addressed, are they? Um, that the, the, you know they sort of, or if they do, they sort of touch on it, and then all of a sudden the character's fine twenty minutes mm-hmm. later. You know, um, you know, oh they've, right. they 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 can't sleep, or they've taken up drinking, or you know they they've got their handshakes, or there's there's some sort of trope that will be introduced to show, oh they're on the edge, they they really are suffering from something <laughs> in the past. How's that going to impact them in the finale? Oh, it won't. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, yeah, it won't be mentioned, yeah. right? I mean. Well, it's like a TV show. There's always that, like, one episode immediately after the, like, abduction and torture of a character where it's like, I'm pretty shaken up by that. Like, you were abducted and tortured. Like, you were going to go through lifelong PTSD and therapy about this. No, there's just going to be, like, one episode where it's mentioned and then never going to be mentioned again. Like, I'm past that. I moved past that, dude. Why are you still worried about it? Why are you still in therapy? This is not a good thing to be telling no, men, and, by the way. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree, definitely <laughs> agree. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I feel is a shame about, about this film is it's a trope of films of this era is it just ends. You know, they defeat mm-hmm. Godzilla yeah. and then they're like, it ends. And that isn't to say that isn't a sort of a thing. That's just a trope. That's just the way these films are constructed in the sort of the 40s and the 50s. It, it's just a thing. But it would have been nicer to have almost like a even a couple of minutes of an epilogue of we've defeated this. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to just survey. What do we do next? You know, and I th- well, the, there's just that little bit where, you know, the uh, Amico scientist father says uh, Godzilla wasn't the last of the species. And there's this kind of like warning against mm. nuclear tests. Like, you know, if we do that, you know, we might awaken another Godzilla, you know, so there's, you know, a slightly heavy-handed kind of uh, little thing there. But, yeah, there's no follow-up on, like, you know, uh, the massive <laughs> Tokyo reconstruction project that's yeah. about to occur. Um, and maybe that's that's a, that's a different kind of film full of, like, people in boardrooms who agree, you know, budgets and uh, con- contracts for construction <laughs> companies and all that kind of stuff. That's a very different film I'm not too interested in seeing. But it just, yeah, it's just a, a thing of this era. Um but yeah, I have to admit, sort of the one of the things, just as a final sort of point, really is this is the night. This is the origin film. I don't think there's any franchise I can think of. I mean, Grant, this has got like you said, this suffers because it's got so many films. But watching those ones from the theaters, that sort of the show era, or the you know the the whatever era the first one was, that changes so quickly because this is a statement film. This film is about something. It has heart. It has a real thing to say. You know, you can discuss it as it, it, in its the context of its time and, and all this other stuff. To becoming basically big monsters kicking the crap out of each other, you know, in the background of a of a, a, a you know a small a sub a human subplot. But the next story, he, he goes up against uh, I think it's Gigan, and then you have, like you say, within a decade, you've got Mechagodzilla, you've got a robot version of Godzilla. You've got films where he's doing, he, you know, in the 60s, like literally within a decade, you have Godzilla dancing, you have him up with, I think it's, it's Ultraman. And like, how did this change so quickly to become something that's so different? I, I, just, I just find that, having watched this film, I find it very, very bizarre. I don't know. What 
Yeah, well, you know, you know more about that that evolution than I do in terms of Godzilla's history um, and, and how quickly it changed. But it, I do think of like, um, I do think of like, say, superheroes, right? Um, you know, you read like early Superman stuff. He's a social crusader. Um, you know, he is beating up uh, men who commit mm. domestic violence. Um, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with the cops. I mean, yes, he has superpowers, but it's very grounded in, you know, not just real life, but actually social justice issues and, um, you know, the society at the time and some of the ills at the, at the time. Um, and, you know, within a decade, right, he's flying around, uh, you know, with a, with a pet you know, with crypto and, and, and clearly it's about something else. And I think that when we look at these genres and, and how they began, they began, there wasn't a genre yet, right? I mean, there wasn't a, a kaiju genre yet. Um, and I think that, you know, there wasn't a superhero genre yet. Um, and so I think that my theory is that what happens is that we, the first films or the first comics or whatever that establish a genre, they have to establish it within the parameters of what we already have, right? So they have to like ease you into it. It has to be like a solid monster movie, you know, about something. Um, and then, then the creators kind of realize like, oh, uh, kids like seeing guys fly around and punch things, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you know, like the audience likes seeing a guy in a, in a rubber suit, you know, devastating Tokyo and it's burning. And it's like, that's what they want, dude. You know, like tone down this social message stuff. I just want to see the carnage. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that per se, but it does sort of lend itself <laughs> to exactly what you're describing where, you know, you know, why not have a yeah. Mecha Godzilla? You know, yeah, that's true. I suppose it, it, you know it's all supposed to be entertainment. I suppose at its, at its core, that's what it's for. Um, but it's, it, it definitely feels like a bit of a shift, um, and that's not. I say it's not a bad thing. You know, those films have some merit in some ways. Um, I'm not a huge fan of them all, um, but yeah, it is definitely an interesting one. Um, but I suppose we sort of run out then. So, final thoughts then on Godzilla. 1954's Godzilla. Final thoughts on Julian? Uh, I love this movie. Um, you know, I mean, I this movie is is going to get a, a decently high rating from me, uh, and I am really thankful that you uh, forced me to watch it. Uh, and I, I didn't even know that I hadn't seen it because I kind of grew up with Godzilla, and I thought, well, I'm sure at some point this was played, you know, and I, I watched this, and they kind of all blend together. Um, but, you know, structurally, it's a little bit of a mess. I mean, thematically, we can kind of take it apart. But it is a solid monster movie. And I think that, um, you know, what you were saying about the difference between the later installments and this one, uh, this one's trying to be a real movie. This one is is forced to be a real movie because there isn't that genre yet. And it is uh, beautiful. It's humanitarian. It's... Uh, entertaining and and i often find myself um enjoying uh some of these older you know versions um you know recently you know that i watched the most recent godzilla the king of monsters and just did not like it <laughs> I, you know and i thought 
you know, I don't know what that costs, right? I mean, that costs yeah. 200 million or something to make. What did this yeah. one cost? I mean, what did the 1954 one? And it's so much better. Uh, and it's a, it's a little sloppy here and there, but so mm. is the new one. Um, you know, you think for 200 million, you could, you could straighten out a plot um, that has as many problems, if not more than this does. But this is such a better movie. It's um, it's charming. It's beautiful, and it has these wonderful scenes that that stick with you. So I really thank you for you know doing this and, and making me watch a. No, this I'm film. glad we're starting off strong, which is good. No, I'm the same. It, it's a, it's an interesting one. You know, going back, I think as you say, sort of everyone has an image of what Godzilla is. Um, probably more so now since the sort of the more recent incarnations of you know, from Hollywood. Um, and I think if you're going to watch those and stuff, I think there's, you know, if you can find this, like, go and watch it. It's important that you do. You see where this origin, you know, originated from, where it came from. Um, but more than that, this is, like I said, it's a good film. It's, you know, it's, it's to say, pacing's not great. It's construct Structurally, it's a little bit of a mess. But overall, it's a really, really good film. Um, I enjoy it. I think the characters are good. I think it's trying to convey a message, it, it, you know, that, that's important. And it has heart. And um, the, the one thing I would highlight, you know, and, and sort of point out is um, it is definitely of its time. You know, the special effects are of their time. Um, and the acting is of its time. Like acting has evolved and changed over time. Um, and so if you know what to expect from sort of like 50s films, then you're going to enjoy this. I, I, I agree. I really enjoyed going back to this. So, um, yeah, good start to season two. I, I did want to say something about what you just raised about the special effects that I find myself utterly charmed by the special effects in this. Uh, and, you know, there are times where you see, okay, that's a suit. Yeah. That's clearly a model there. Right. But then there are other times, you know, like, okay, you, you've added a glow to the celluloid, you know, I mean, you can see how it's done, but, um, but, you know, there's so much that does work. Uh, I think one of the weakest things is when you see Godzilla's yeah. eyes, <laughs> you know, where there's the shot, and, and it looks like yeah. such a cartoon. Uh, but, but you know, I, I don't know why I find it, I'm so accepting of this, and I find it so difficult to accept a lot of uh, CG that I think, like, well, you know, it's 99% there, but I'm just annoyed by how mm. glossy it looks. I'm annoyed by, you know, like, yeah, you know, like uh, you're not showing the whole Godzilla, right? You're showing these close-up shots because it's easier to render and make it make it look, you know, believable. Whereas in this, you know, and in, in, in earlier movies, I often think, um, yeah, I know you're conveying an idea, but you've conveyed it successfully and I'm willing to go with it in a way that I'm not... I, I honestly think that's a part of it is the acceptance. I mean, because I love miniatures, you know, when you see them in films, I think um, all the mm. way well into the eighties, nineties, you know, if you see like, you know, things like we said about devastation and you see cars tumbling across and it's clearly like a hot wheels. Like I, I, I love all that stuff. I think they look <laughs> great, but again, especially the miniatures in this look good. Um, yeah. And like you say, there is a couple of moments where the guy in a suit looks and moves like a guy in a suit. Um, <laughs> But I don't know what it is. I am. I'm more willing to. I just. I just. Charming is definitely the word. I just. I just like seeing this stuff. I mean, I'm. A, I'm a bit of a. Um, a nerd for like Harryhausen. You know the stop motion stuff. I 
love all that stuff. I think mm-hmm. it looks great. Um, you know, it doesn't look great. That's part of the problem. It doesn't look great, but I just love seeing it. I think it's such a, a I think there's a mastery to it as well that I think, you know, I'm sure there is. There's a skill to doing CGI stuff with a computer, but when I see stuff special, because there's some, there's some stop motion in this as well. But when you know you've got to build a miniature, someone's had to have built a miniature, done the perspective right, added all the details and all sort of the stuff, and then you're going to blow it up. And you're sort of like, oh, that must be so gutting. You put all that work into that. You, you get one shot at it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I do. I, I don't know. I, I do kind of enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And for me, for me, the CG, you know, that is the best is the yeah. one that you don't notice, right? I mean, it's the scenes where you you only learn later, oh, yeah, that was digitally enhanced in this way or another. If you're conscious of it, then it's just another kind of miniature, right? Um, you're now conscious, yeah. oh, that's a miniature. Oh, that's, a, that's mm. a CG shot, right? That leprechaun dude is not really there in the scene, right? And then I'm thinking like, oh, how did they do this? That actor is talking to a green screen. And ultimately, if you're conscious of it, it's the idea of yeah. a leprechaun, right? It might be a more convincing visual depiction of one, um, but it's still the idea of there's a there's a Godzilla there, there's a leprechaun, there's a there's a whatever. If you admit that, then what's the difference between that and a miniature that conveys? Okay, here's this idea. It's really enough, or you know, Ray Harryhausen, who I also love, like there's a kind of thrill to saying, you know, you know, first of all, how they did it, but also secondly, like, yeah, I get it. There's a, there's a leprechaun guy there. Um, if it's not going to be a hundred percent invisible, why make it that close? No, I agree. I and I think it'll be interesting because we're starting the series with this from 1954 with these very sort of basic, very sort of physical guy in suit and, um, stop motion animation kind of special effects. And the end of this series with Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets is incredibly CGI heavy for obvious reasons. So I think that'd be something to consider when we get there is sort of like, okay, so, you know, how does that fit in that thing uh, across what almost, well, you know, 60 years of, of filmmaking. Um, so I think that'd be an interesting point to look at as well, actually. Um, but we're not out, we're not out of the, those old times yet. You're going to see some, other some more um oldies worldies special effects next on the next episode um another film you you haven't seen yet um yes the, the hammer hot well, it's, it's not a hot right it's sorry it could be sci-fi horror but it's a hammer studios production uh from the 1960s uh uh mass and the pit um and i love this film i absolutely love it charming is one of those but this is something about this film that i just love and so i cannot wait to see what you think of this even if you you may tear it to pieces because uh, it has its flaws <laughs> but uh, I, I i really enjoy this film so i can't wait to see what you got to say about it um well i'm looking forward to it too i'm, I'm glad you're you're <laughs> making me watch it uh for better or worse and i and i'm a huge hammer horror fan i mean i've seen you know, back in the days when you had to go to, um, you know, to video stores and, and track down the tapes and stuff, I would go to, you know, a weird video store out in the middle of nowhere where they just had all these like oversized, you know, the old oversized mm-hmm. plastic VHS boxes of like all the hammer horror stuff. And I'd be like, you know, 
I don't know where this one occurs in the series, but I'm getting these three. Uh, you know, so I kind of like track that stuff down and love that stuff. But Quartermass was never. Yeah, there's going to be a bit of a, say there'll be a bit of a history lesson around Quatermass as well because he's a he's almost like a lost British sci-fi icon, um, and this is sort of part. I would say the pinnacle of that. Um, you know. Because you, you, I don't know if you've heard of, like, you know, there's like the Quatermass experiment, and then there's um, uh, X from the unknown, and all these other things that sort of were done. So, but this is a, is a great, great film. I'm really looking forward to it. So, yeah. So on the next episode, we are going to be doing Quatermass and the Pit, uh, the Hammer Studios production, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, but Julian, as always, it's, it's been an absolute blast. This has been great. We're doing it on video. This is, so if this has worked, <laughs> I've downloaded it uh, correctly. <laughs> This will be on YouTube at the same time we release the podcast. Um, and uh, check us out. Leave some uh, comments below. I'm going to be doing these kinds of things because, you know, I'll point to this. Comments below, ring the bell, subscribe. If you want to sort of hear more, see more, let us know what you think. Uh, and to the podcasters, that's, yeah, if they're here somewhere, yeah. that's click, it. Yeah, click a like. Whatever it is, right. these things down here, yeah. click on those. <laughs> um, and for those, for those listening to the podcast, <laughs> Go check out the YouTube because you can see our faces. Um, but also, obviously, subscribe, leave a review, let us know what you think, and interact with us. We're on, uh, we are on Twitter at Pod Time Space. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Godzilla franchise? Have you seen this original? What are your thoughts on the modern takes? Um, you know, has it has it lost its way? Is it still great? Do you like the devastation uh, and the special effects? Um, but in the meantime, Julian, thank you very much, and. Uh, as Thank always, you, Scott. It's an honor. Catch up next time. <laughs> <laughs>